Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. It's actually December 23rd when I'm recording this, and it is minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit here in Chicago. Um, so as you can imagine, we're not going to be going out anywhere today. Um, we were supposed to have a ton of snow. We ended up with just one or two inches, but um, I can't remember it being this cold in a long time over here. I hope it's better wherever you are. As always, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, or you can reach me at hello at onstrategyshowcase.com. I want to just mention the fact that um, that this show doesn't exist without the generous support of our sponsors. Uh, if you are interested in being a sponsor of the show in 2023 and sort of exploring further what the possibilities are, you can download our sponsor kit for 2023 on our homepage at onstrategyshowcase.com. Uh, we have a bunch of new things planned uh, for next year. We just finished up a great series with War which has been tremendously popular. And um, uh, we're going to be doing a, a bunch more of those next year, which are great opportunities for brands who want to reach marketers and agencies around the world. Uh, it's a great opportunity to tie yourself to topics and to participate in um, the, um, the, the, um, the conversation around these topics uh, next year. Um, so I hope that you will uh, check out the kit and you can reach out to me and we can have a direct conversation. Uh, hello at OnStrategyShowcase.com. Thank you for that. Thank you for a great year. Thank you for all of our sponsors in, in uh, 2022. And we're excited what lies ahead. So back to today's show, um, Mark Ritson is back to talk about the top 10 marketing moments of 2022. We did this last year. It was a fun episode, very popular, and we're excited to dive into it. Uh, it's about what they, those moments were and why they mattered. And that's the important part. So um, I thank Mark for coming back on. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you have a great holiday. And I wish you all a happy new year. Enjoy. Take care. See you next year. So, Mark, we are back here again. I'm uh, I'm honored to have you back. You were uh, we did this last year. It was really successful. Everybody loved it. And so uh, I welcome you back, Mr. Ritson. Hello, Fergus. Merry Christmas. Can you believe it's a year since the last one? God, I, I really can't. And then I, I was thinking about that a couple of minutes before we started, and I was just, it's, I don't know, man. The older I get, the things, the faster things move. Yeah. No shit. So I don't know. Anyway, you, um, you know, I, I got, I got some uh, DMs from people who attended uh, your presentation of this live in London uh, last week. I believe it was. Uh, you did the same presentation for the Marketing Academy, and uh, I think it went down really well. So, I'm excited to do to do it here uh, for the uh, for the audio uh, listeners. Let's let's talk a little bit first about. Um, what goes into the top 10 marketing moments? What is the sort of the criteria you like to use to determine your top 10? Is there, is, is there thinking behind it or like what makes oh, yeah, one yeah, yeah. More, no, so more different than 10? The most important message for all of your listeners is just how scientific my approach is. It's very <laughs> scientific. I wear a white coat. I get test tubes out. We do all kinds of things with microscopes. No, it's... um. It's it's kind of become a thing, I guess. Um, about 13 years ago, I started doing it, and and the the background is really very simple. Originally, it was kind of the 10 biggest stories of the marketing year, and that's still kind of the main rationale behind it. But also, 
what what are the implications for marketers as well? So not just, you know, this happened and that was big, but what does it tell us about marketing going forward and what does it show us? So more than just, you know, top 10 hits sort of thing, what is it indicative of? And they're, they're the two things I look for when I put it together, but it's complete bullshit in terms of, you know, we're not using any kind of data or any kind of nonsense there. We're just, it's my take on what, what I thought were the big things of the year. So let's start at the top, uh, and we'll uh, drop in our little jingle bell sound right here. Ooh, that was quite nice. So here we go. Number 10, Musk messes up pricing. Tell us about this one. So I, I don't know about you, and I'd be intrigued your take on Musk in general and the Twitter saga. I, it, I may have got this wrong given the last couple of days of what's been happening, but I still think Musk is trying desperately to find a middle ground between left and right and is getting portrayed in a certain way that may or may not be accurate. But this reflects a def. I mean, I don't know whether he's going to pull this off or not, but this reflects a definite error, which was at the very outset of his tenure at Twitter. I mean, I think we're talking barely a week after walking in with the sink. Um he started mucking around with price. And if you remember, what he did was he went out and said to everyone that had a, well, everyone, that the blue tick certification thing was now going to cost 20 bucks a month. Right. And it created, not surprisingly, it's a fair old chunk of change for anyone, right? A, a lot of feedback on 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 his own social media engine, in particular, famously from Stephen King. <laughs> who I think responded by saying, if you try and charge me 20 bucks for something that was free, given you should really be paying me for all this content, I'm gone. I'm out of here, right? And Musk responded with a, with a tweet that almost in real time, which said, you know, hold on, hold on. We, we got we to gotta pay our bills somehow. If 20 bucks doesn't work, how about eight bucks? And so I, I just think it was an extraordinary moment of how not to do pricing on a number of different levels. First, because obviously... To, to set a price at 20 bucks out of the blue. So if you're if you're one of these certified blue tick people and you've been getting something for free and now it's going to be 240 bucks a year, clearly that's a nonsensical proposition. There's also the sense that of all the people to go after, those guys that are certified are probably not the people you want to piss off. They're kind of the heart of the machine. And then there's the way he dropped his price from 20 bucks to eight bucks you know, almost on the whim of one single response from a customer. And finally, there's the justification that he gave Stephen King, which was, um, you know, this is, you know, we got to pay our bills. And, and the whole point of pricing is, yeah, yeah, sure. You've you got to make enough money to drive the organization and value has to be generated for the for the organization and its shareholders. But the other prong of the V is all about customers, You've got to work out where the value is for them. And, and if you've been getting something for free for a decade, trying to screw 240 bucks out of people overnight is not obviously going to work. So for me, it was a masterclass in how not to do pricing from someone who's meant to be better than that. And, and I think it was a remarkable single moment of stupidity from a man who's often really is a genius. Yeah, yeah. For me, I thought about it as sort of, uh, indicative of the way that he manages. And I don't think we at that time 
as a, as a general public understood that, that he was very knee jerk oriented. And the fact that decisions are being made based on his own yeah. personal intuition without consideration for how people would react. There's no respect for running the traps on decision making before you announce that's it to it. the public. That's it. That that's the key point. Absolutely the key point, Fergus. I mean, I've praised him before when he's he's done exactly that and changed something overnight. Um because of again as you say this sort of autonomic response that he has but with pricing the le- the key lesson is you don't do that shit with pricing you you do need research you do need to think it through and you do need to you know the crucial thing i bang on about all the time is you have to frame a price if you look at all the pricing work that's been done over the last 20 years the way we present the price is inarguably more important than the price itself and he's presenting it in such a dog shit fashion that it doesn't really matter what the fee is, he's going to blow it. So I think, yeah, for me, you've nailed it there. The core lesson is pricing, not price, but pricing is not something you do on a whim. It's a tactic that needs strategy and research and a bit of testing. And and that's, you know, arguably what marketers can bring to the, to the organizational table. So for me, also the bigger the bigger um, implication of Musk as a leader in at Twitter, because at Twitter we seem to be facing the fact that he's a he seems to be a different kind of leader. Meaning that we can't forget that he was forced to buy Twitter; he didn't choose to buy yeah. Twitter. Yeah. And now we see um, some people reporting on sort of brand decay at the Tesla level in terms of. The appeal of the Tesla brand, sort of the shine coming off of it for certain buyers. There's a lesson in this too, which is this sort of um, unpredictable CEO in a in a in a in a business environment where predictability is important. You're absolutely right. As a result of that, it's hurting the other brands in his portfolio. And the days of Musk being essentially with Tesla a one-brand guy and pretty much a branded house are long over. He's got space exploration. He's got boring. Now he's got Twitter, which is incredibly visible and relatively unimportant. But what you're seeing is the implications of running a house of brands where there is still a link between the brands and the link is obviously Musk. So the risk profile is pretty high. I think we used to associate leadership with a certain set of, of, of a certain sort of bundle of talents but also a certain set of behaviors. And I think they've been pulled apart now where we're having to sort of accept talent with its set of behaviors and the behaviors we may not like and Mm. the behaviors may make us uncomfortable, but we tolerate them because the core talent seems to add so much value. I like that. I mean, for me, I've been watching this leadership literature for 20 years dissolve into mush, you know, leadership, leadership is emotional intelligence you know, all that useless nonsense. That's not leadership. And I think, to your point, leadership has always been about making a call and getting it, getting everyone to follow you, right or wrong. And we've always paid that price. It's just that the literature on leadership has become soft and politically attuned to this generic form of leadership, which if you hold it up to any true leader of any kind, does not ring true. It's a prototypical version of how we want leaders to be in a fictional sense. Great leaders are always flawed, and their characters are always the price we pay for the leadership we get. It's just that leadership became mushy and soft 20 years ago and and divorced from reality, in my opinion. So number nine is... 
Brands mourn Queen Elizabeth II. Yeah, um, tragically, but a, a good innings, as we say in England. Uh, Queen Elizabeth passed away. And I was struck at the time by, and I don't know if you saw it as much in the US, but in the UK, pretty much every brand made some kind of earnest tweet about their thoughts on the passing of the monarch. And we're talking about, you know, the examples I use, you know, there's a toy company that did like a black and white version of a toy queen model or something, or there was, you know, Thomas Cook, one of our large travel agents said, you know, safe travel, <laughs> safe travels, mom. Oh my, my God, was, that was crazy. That was great. The British Kebab Awards tweeted this very, you know, um, emotional response. And the best one was probably uh, Jimmy's Dildo Emporium, which is an online, I'm, I'm reliably told, is, is a very big online dildo uh, website. A very emotional tweet about how they wouldn't be tweeting for a few days in respect for the Queen, you know. And <laughs> there's nothing wrong with any of that in the sense that it doesn't damage brands. But the point is it's symptomatic of something which... I think is one of the big problems of marketing at the moment, which is uh, so many marketers have completely lost the plot and think that their brands are important to consumers. Um, and and they're definitely not. Uh, none of them are. So we've got to this point where, because we work eight hours a day on our brands quite correctly, we uh, the brand sits at the center of our universe and we've lost all market orientation and forgotten that the brand does not sit at the center of any customer's universe, even ones that buy us regularly. We're a tiny, little, unimportant thing. And our point of view on the death of the queen, on coronavirus, on elections, on anything is totally unimportant. Yeah. And it's a huge arrogance and hubris on the part of marketers to want to get involved in all of that. They really have lost track. And I just felt the, the, the tweets about the Queen were a perfect illustration of brands overstepping the mark. And, and the reason that's important is, in my experience, when you understand a brand is a little thing, tiny, unimportant, you manage it better. Because that's not a negative thing to say. It's it's realism. you know. And, and what happens is things like purpose for, mo for, the, for most brands become, you know, completely unimportant when you realize that no one cares what your purpose is it's just nonsense and things like salience whether your brand comes to mind becomes super important because you suddenly realize that it doesn't most of the time so for me this was just a, a a classic example of how brands have inflated themselves in a completely overstated way uh, and and unfortunately that's symptomatic of what's been going on for a long time is part of this the fact that so many brands feel they have to be making contacts with their so-called community or their followers or their base on a frequent uh, uh, basis in order to maintain traction and is the and is the other part of this almost the fear of retaliation if you don't do something that if you don't signal that you're mourning the queen that you might be accused of not being sensitive to such a nationally important topic is part of it that that we've gotten into this rhythm where we feel that if we don't do it, that we might uh, we might be sort of pointed out? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think that's a good call. Um, I think one of the mistakes that's happened for ten years or more now is brands on social media have forgotten that social media and the clue is in the title is all about people, and they've become anthropomorphic in a sense that they feel like they have to have an opinion. 
the brand has to have a conversation and it, it never yeah. works. It never rings true. And so I think you're right. A lot of it is just, we need to feel the nation's pain. We need to have a voice. I mean, again, it does no harm, but my point is proper brands realize no one gives a damn what we think. In fact, no one even thinks about us. And our focus right now should be on getting people to think about us in these particular situations, not going on these highfalutin missions of, you know, of opinion and attitude and cultural fit. Our next one is uh, number eight. Is Brewdog Empty Salience. Now, this is interesting because this is a campaign a couple of months back. I began to see posts of, of, of about you know, images of this, this campaign, and I wasn't fully getting it because this wasn't happening. I, I don't believe it was here in the U.S. It was mostly in the U.K., no. I believe. Um, yeah, it, so I was struggling to figure out what the issue was, but there was a lot of uh, pushback. Uh, tell us about what this story was about. It, it's a big one for a number of reasons. So Brewdog is a Scottish brewery. It's independent. It makes very hop-forward IPAs. And over the last decade, it's taken that strength and independence, and it's kind of fed into its tone of voice. It's a very um, extrovert, confident, disruptive brand. Yeah, it talks about itself as sort of a a punk craft brewery. A punk craft. It's got a punk sensibility. Exactly right. And um, they're doing very well. They're growing very fast, especially, especially in the U.K., and uh, this is the latest of a long line of PR stunts that we could talk about for easily the whole hour, where they essentially identified that the, the FIFA World Cup in Qatar was a disgrace, which, of course, it is, was. Um, and they d- declared themselves the anti-sponsor, brewed, brewed a beer that was kind of an oppositional beer and said they'd donate all the profits to charity and had this very... Uh, 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 What's the right word? There were a few outdoor ads, big outdoor ads, that were then amplified across social and media and created a a pretty big discussion. And the ads were basically, we are opposed. We're the anti-sponsor of the World Cup. It's the beautiful game was turned into the beautiful shame, et cetera, et cetera. And as you probably picked up in your community, the marketing subculture and the media hit them pretty hard with, this is bullshit. And it was, you know, absolutely bullshit in the sense that Brewdog was still exporting beer to Qatar. They were showing the, the World Cup games in their in their pubs. Um, and even the CEO of, of Brewdog had had his own employee issues. So he really wasn't in a position to criticize FIFA and, and Qatar and et cetera, et cetera. My point about this was, A, it was a big story, but B, I think marketing the marketing community is wrong here. So I, the idea that somehow the Brewdog campaign will come back and bite them because they're not walking the walk. It's just marketing bullshit. It's outdated bullshit. And the point is we live in an age, again, of salience, of brands just needing to be noticed. And I think a lot of marketers are living in 1990. And I have to say, especially American marketers who are not on top of the later theories of marketing that have been developed in the last five years. And it pains me to say that because... Marketing was invented in America, literally. But I think a lot of American marketers are behind. If you think about it, I mean, the great book of the early era of brand management was Managing Brand Equity by David Arker. Fantastic book. Great book, absolutely, yeah. Early 90s, maybe even 1990. That's 30-odd years ago. And a lot has changed. And the way Arker sets up the concept of brand, which we all bought into, was this idea of awareness 
as a gateway variable. And then these brand associations, the brand image being the all-important thing that established a relationship with the customer. And at the time, it made perfect sense. It's just not quite true. And the way we've evolved in the last five to 10 years, mostly thanks to Ehrenberg Bass, is the idea that most of the brand preference and purchase is being driven by simple salience, by the first brand that comes to mind. And that system one, you know, I need a beer, Brewdog, can then be explained and rationalized by a much more complex system two process, which a consumer will give you in qual or quant research. It's just not true. The consumer thinks it's true. The reality is the brand that I think of first is inevitably, in most cases, the one I buy. And we're not just talking low involvement. We're talking high involvement, B2B. Salience is a much more important thing. And brand image, much less important and much less fragile than we once believed. Everyone's critiquing Brewdog on the basis that, yeah, okay, it's generated a lot of attention, but it's not accurate and it's not true. They're missing the point. 75% of the game, maybe more, is just coming to mind and grabbing that attention. And but I think regardless man- of whether it is in, in a positive light or, or regardless of whether you've got a bunch of negative publicity out there, you're you're am I hearing you right that you're suggesting that you don't think that mattered as a I, reputational ding? I don't, I don't for, think in, in this case and 99% cases it matters at all, Fergus. I think there is such a thing as bad publicity. It's called bad publicity, right? But it only happens in very, very, very rare cases in terms of influencing negatively the purchase of the brand. Sure, you get negative publicity a lot, but a function of that is you also generate tons of salience. So I would always say to brands, ideally, of course, you want to generate shit tons of salience and be very on-brand, very tight to your position, of course. My point is, in some cases, BrewDog is a good example. That's pretty hard to achieve. So trade a little bit of that consistency, a little bit of that perfection for salience, because salience is more important than image. And in the rare cases where you do something which is really negatively perceived, it's going to do you no damage, and it'll still drive salience. One of the hallmarks of BrewDog, who totally understand this, is they keep doing stuff yeah, all the time. Moving on, another campaign, another campaign, because they get the idea of staying in the mind of the consumer who constantly forgets. And I think that the advice to brand managers is, short: stay on brand, stay consistent, don't deliberately do things which are negative, but there will be occasions and opportunities that arise where it won't be quite on brand, but by God, it will get you noticed. A 1990s-style American-trained brand manager would go, oh, no, no, but it's not on brand, and walk away from that. That's the wrong move. The right move is to embrace it and go, you know what? This will work for us. We'll move on. It's not going to do us any damage. Les Binette has a great point about this, Fergus. He says, you know, he's been knocking around 40 years now. He's seen some bad advertising in his time. None of it has ever hurt a brand sales, ever. We, we've got our theory wrong. We're overly sensitive to the brand concept. You know that that phrase, you know, brand reputations are built in a lifetime, but they only take seconds to destroy. That's total fucking bullshit. It's totally wrong. It's absolutely wrong, you know? And you've only got to look around at brands and what they've done to realize that. So, yeah, in a dream world, tons of salience, tons of brand image, all 
you know, attached together. But what Brewdog show us is that in, in many cases you don't get that perfect world. Trade some perfection for salience, for attention, for eyeballs. So number seven is the tick-tockification of everything. Tell us about this. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I invented that phrase, but I'm sure someone else did it before me anyway. Um, if you look at what's happening with TikTok, as everybody knows, it's really a triple threat, right? First, because it's growing faster than any other social media brand. Took five, uh, was it five or five years to get to a billion users? You know, it's right. it's yeah. it's going real quick. Faster than and any of the other big platforms. Faster than any of the other media. It also has already, for those users, significantly more user time per day. I mean, you know, the, the figures vary, but whatever whatever average you look at, it's a factor of 50% more addictive, more time-consuming than anything else in your portfolio of social media. And finally, it's the perfect advertising medium. We can just drop in short ads into the carousel of the format beautifully, right? It's, it's almost made for advertising. Put those three things together. Projections are it will become a mighty social media giant. Um, already is big, but will become huge in the next two, three years. So the question is, what do the incumbent social media platforms do? And the answer is, at least looking at this year, um, not a lot. They do everything wrong. So we could summarize the response of of everyone from from Facebook to YouTube to be the same, which was. We need more video. We need more short-form video, less than 60 seconds. We need it full screen, and we need it algorithmically driven so that we keep serving you more and more interesting videos. So they've eff effectively copied TikTok's model, which, if you follow any form of basic strategy, is, is not the right answer for two reasons. That's not what your brand is all about. Um, and there was a famous case where the Cardassians who love Instagram basically had to scold Instagram this year and say, look, stop trying to be TikTok. Instagram isn't about that. It's not about video. It's about images. And it's not about algorithms from someone in Turkey with an interesting chicken video. It's about my friends sharing those images. Please stop doing that. So the brands kind of tried to change their spots. And at the same time, you can't be more TikTok than TikTok, which has the best algorithm, which is known for video. So it was strategically very disappointing. And, you know, I, I, I wrote a column about it saying it's a classic example of core competence, which means, you know, core competence for me is the great strategic concept. The idea that a company becomes good at certain stuff and therefore is bad at other stuff. And that sounds very simple, but it's as you get older and fatter, more and more explanatory you know and here we had the example that brands that were disruptors um are not very good at handling disruption you know if you take uh, mbappe the inarguably the greatest striker of, in the game of soccer right now he scores a lot of goals and if you said well if he can score a lot of goals he can probably stop a lot of goals let's put him in, in, in as a goalkeeper he'd be useless at that in the same token just because Facebook or Meta were a great disruptor doesn't mean they're going to defend themselves against disruption very well. And I think that's what you're seeing. At least that's what I thought we were seeing. And I wrote an article saying, essentially, these brands have been good at disrupting, but they're, they're useless at defending against disruption. And then I realized, oh, hang on, that's not what's going on. 
What's really going on, and the reason all of these social media platforms have effectively cloned TikTok and are now offering a TikTok-like service within their platforms, is they know something we don't, which is during 2023, there will obviously be some kind of push to get TikTok banned because of its Chinese origins, allowing them to step in and take all of those users and all of those minutes if they have a TikTok-ready service. And I think that's exactly what's going on now with Marco Rubio, with various different bills going through Congress, which are being funded by various different sources. I think the big social media platforms have realized the only way to beat TikTok is to use their power on the hill, which is substantial now, to get TikTok banned. And if I wanted to be a poor man, Scott Galloway, I'd predict that before calendar year end 2023, TikTok will have been banned in the United States. So number six, Airbnb goes long. Tell us about um, this story uh, in terms of Airbnb and its sort of shift in its emphasis and its media spend and its its media strategy. So messaging covered, strategy, I suppose. Yeah, you've covered stories like this on your on your show before, but it's it's a big one, right? So go back to 2019. Airbnb is basically a performance marketer. They spend most of their money on things like Google search advertising. You want to go and stay in Chicago for a weekend. You start searching for Chicago hotels. Well, Airbnb are paying a fortune to promote their properties and their uh, alternatives for Chicago. In 2019, the company makes a decision, which is most, if not all, of our Google search activity isn't being driven by that. It just looks like it is. Most people, are, uh, when they experiment, and this is, again, a common finding, most people that are searching for Airbnb in Chicago would have done it anyway. They're coming ready to do it. And search advertising is overclaiming its performance. And so what they do is they cut back on that. They still do it, but they cut back on it. They actually cut back their overall marketing budget but not a little bit, but they significantly move a bigger proportion of their comm spend into brand building, specifically PR and long-form advertising, which is occasionally TV, but it's mostly digital video, which we know can be just as powerful as TV these days, and, and essentially go back to 60-second TV advertising brand building stuff. And two and a half years on, the CFO of all people, and it's usually a good sign when it's the CFO, reports that it's been working, they're very pleased with the results, and the impact and, and results are record levels, and, and they're going to continue with this approach. And there's a couple of things there. It's mo For me, the most fascinating thing was the timing. So it's, it's two and a half years, uh, you know, getting on for three years before they start talking about it. That's because it takes a bit of time when you move from an overinvestment in performance into a more balanced approach to see the proper results. And, and for me, that lag is why most companies don't do it. You know, if you look at a 12-month period, performance marketing will always give you a better return. It's only in years two, certainly three, four, five, six, seven, forever, where putting the right amount of money into brand building and then the rest in performance gives you this much more improved performance. So it's companies that only see the world through a 12-month window and only look at short-term ROI, who ironically are constrained to poor performance because they don't realize that brand investment ultimately makes you more money. And so I thought it was a really good case for all the companies out there, and, and it's a lot, 
who continue to overinvest in performance, don't see the value of brand investment. And as a result, ironically, don't make as much money as they could. You know, I get a lot of crap from people saying in performance marketing, saying, Ooh, you, you know, you're saying, you know, move to brand building. The, you know, the, the great work on this by Field and Burnett, the long and the short of it, the most important word in, in the long and the short of it book is and. Nobody, nobody makes the case for moving all your money to brand or all your money to performance, yeah? The the reality is there's a sweet spot, a correct balance based on your age, your category, your innovation level, your competitors, you know, a, 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 an array of different factors that dictates the approximate right balance of long and short. And I've worked for clients where that balance, and we spent a long time working out, was 75% brand building. And I've worked for clients where the right balance was 70% performance. Number five, extrapolation errors. Tell us about what this is. So this is a big one. Um, so I run I run into this, uh, very, I'm sure, very nice chap um, uh, called Martin Lindstrom, who's a brand guru, particularly in the United States. I, I think he's a Dane originally, but he's based in the US now. And, and when coronavirus hit, being old and experienced now, I did a couple of things. I did a whole bunch of seminars, and we're talking March of 2020. So really, when we were right in the in the in the origin of coronavirus, talking about how it was going to hit and what it meant for brands, but also warning marketers that we'd get a whole bunch of catastrophe monkeys, as I called them, who would tell you that this the world has completely changed, turned on its head, nothing will be the same again. Throw yourself out of a window, set fire to your pants. Everything's going to be different because that's what marketing is, the pornography of change. And what I basically said was, <laughs> we are surely, we're surely going to go through a really bad time of it. But when we come out of the other end, which we also surely will, we will revert back to the mean and the world will not change forever. And sure enough, Martin Lindstrom, among others, came forward and with a new book, you know, Biology and the Coronavirus Age, laying out the new rules of marketing and how it was all changed forever. And that was all nonsense. And I called it out and said, look, you know, it, it's great you're selling books, but you're selling books with nonsense here. This is not how this is going to play out. And so extrapolation errors refers to this idea that if you take any data point from coronavirus, I think with the exception of working from home, which, by the way, is still a moot point. Let's see how that reverts over the next decade. But every other consumer metric, you find that you've got a nice line that's gradually pegging upwards. We hit coronavirus and it goes through the roof. If you extrapolate from the going through the roof phase, for example, you know the, the US government has data on the proportion of sales done online, and it's sitting around 20% in 2019. In 2020, it almost doubles to 40%. Now, if you're Martin Lindstrom, you argue that's because everything has changed forever. I would argue it's because people are locked up in their houses and can't go to the shop, right? So they have to use the internet. And sure enough, if you look at the data now, we have reverted back to exactly where we would have been in terms of proportion of digital sales that we would have been if coronavirus had never happened. It doesn't mean we went back to 2019's levels. We went back to wherever we would have been on that same boring brand line of continuity. So what and does the that reason, tell us? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. Well, it's interesting because a number of companies, and, and the big one was Netflix, 
made the same mistake. So if you remember Netflix at the start of this year got in tons of trouble because they projected they were going to recruit something like two and a half million new subscribers. And they ended up losing a couple of hundred thousand. And the, sh- the stock price dropped and the media said, is this the end of the net- Netflix bubble? And blah, blah, blah. I-, I maintain, and if you run the numbers on this, it- it's spookily accurate. All Netflix did either naively or greedily is they they extrapolated off their coronavirus base into a period where coronavirus didn't exist anymore. So rather than continuing to grow post-coronavirus, what they ended up doing is dropping back because we came out of that sector. And if you look now, the numbers are back up again. It's very healthy. It's just that they looked at this little bubble period and didn't extrapolate from a longer, uh, more accurate period of time. And, and the big lesson for marketers, and again, this pornography of change, is there's you know there's no money in saying to people, it'll go back pretty much to where it was before. There isn't a book to be sold there. But there's a great book and, a, and you know, and all kinds of attention for saying the world has changed forever. As marketers, we need to be more boring. We need to be more sensible. And we need to revert back to a much, much broader mean with more data points than, than just extrapolating off the latest moment and getting involved in this pornographic love of change. And the problem we've got is we all start buying into that change argument because it's the one we hear the most because that's the one that has financial incentives, seminars and books on how the metaverse will change everything like 3D printing, et cetera. Um, you, need, you need to be more conservative about change. It, it is happening, but it's happening at a much slower rate than marketers would have you believe. And a shout out to Martin Lindstrom. If you want to come on the show to counter this, you can. You are more than welcome to do that. We uh, give people equal time. Absolutely right. Number four, Patagonia giveaway. This was huge this year, and an, an incredible signal to the um, the world of purpose and and mission. Uh, tell us about what Patagonia giveaway is. Well, I think we've all known for a long time that Patagonia is the real deal, right? So during Black Friday, again, Patagonia this year said, please don't buy anything. Don't buy things because they're cheap. Buy them when you need them. And if you buy anything from us this Black Friday and we're not doing any discounts, we'll give that profit back to environmental charities. So they've always walked the walk. We all know that, right? They come up in every presentation about brand purpose. And here we had the ultimate illustration where Schwinnar, the boss and the founder, gave the business away to a, a to a trust which will ensure that all the profits forever will go to environmental causes. I love the fact that he had to pay tax on that gift as well. So the business is worth about $3 billion and he has to pay the US government from his own pocket for the donation as well. Yeah, and, and so what that illustrates is, for me, the best thing I wrote all year in my column, the purpose of purpose is purpose. And Explain that. The, the reason we do purposeful things is not for profit. It's because we believe in that purpose. And, uh, you know, uh, again, I think it's a famous Birnbach quote. A principle is only a principle if it costs you something. That's right. Purpose purpose is only purpose if it, if it costs you something. In Srinath's case, it cost him everything financially. He gave everything away because he believes in the purpose. And now contrast that with the ridiculous, pathetic, 
hilarious adolescent concept of brand purpose that we've been obsessed with for five years in marketing, which is a joke, which is, no, 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 no. Brand purpose doesn't have to cost you anything. In fact, brand purpose will make you more money. It'll make you give you more customers, allow you to have a stronger brand, grow your brand more. It completely and utterly runs counter to the concept of purpose as illustrated by Patagonia. Or even the necessity for purpose, right? I mean, I think that's part of the conversation too, which is why we have, it's been very strange to me too, to see how all of a sudden there was a sense that everybody had to have a purpose. Uh, And it's, uh, it's, I don't understand how we, how we got here. But the I think it's perfectly realistic to question even the necess- the necessity of purpose. Well, and when you did, as I've done and you've done, but I've done repeatedly since we started getting this nonsense, people question why, you know, why why are you like this? Did you have a hard childhood? Why don't you see, you know, and it's like, no, 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 this whole thing is nonsense, right? Talk to talk to Yvonne Schwina if you want to understand purpose. You know, all of us have things that we believe in that we're driven by a certain purpose. They're not going to make us money. You know what I mean? That's the opposite of what they do. They're there because we believe in them, and they'll almost certainly, to Birnbach's point, they'll cost us something. And so I think what Patagonia did once again was demonstrate the real purpose, the real social purpose, which contrasted very poorly with the bullshit of our brand purpose, this little Mickey Mouse idea which allows marketers to sound good at dinner parties. You know, no, no, I don't sell caffeinated beverages. No, 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 we have a much bigger purpose than that. But yet the the ridiculousness of it, that we're still going to have a brand purpose because it will make us more money and the brands that have purpose grow faster and make more money. It, it, it was so naive to, and yet we bought into it in such a wholesale fashion that you started to worry about the overall rigor of the industry for a while. It's an example of the fact that our industry loves to create new centers for revenue or new practice areas or new things that are new shiny objects. And this just seemed to come up as being the shiny, one of these shiny objects. You can have principles that you, that your, your organization is built upon. They can be, those are things I think that, that influence Patagonia or EI, other brands. Um, and they find, they find their strength through those beliefs, but that's not necessarily purpose. Uh, in my, my view, when I look at the lens through which purpose is being looked at today, everything seems to want to be put through the lens of a purpose. uh, And it's, 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 it's madness. And my take on it from the beginning was purpose is a strategic decision. I'm not always saying it's wrong. There are certain brands it's worked for brilliantly, right? I I resent, as you say, when people say, oh, if you don't have purpose, you'll fail. That's nonsense. Yes, yes. Purpose, Purpose is a strategic choice. Like any strategic choice, it works for some brands, it doesn't work for others. And making that choice should be something you go through. But it isn't some you know, uh, essential that without purpose, your brand will fade and die. Because my argument would be certainly more than 90% of the brands claiming a social purpose were doing it for the wrong reasons and probably executing it in the wrong ways. Number three, Unilever puts purpose second. This is an yes. important one. It's very important. It does go hand in hand with Patagonia. So, if you follow the debate, we go back to about 20, really 2017, 2018, Unilever discovered purpose. They put purpose at the heart of everything they did. Um, 
to the degree where, if you remember, they showed with clear, but I would argue ambiguous data, that when they introduced purpose to a brand, it made that brand a faster growing brand than the ones in their portfolio without purpose. Now, my argument was, I think they chose the fastest growing brands and then gave them purpose and they prioritized those brands. But Unilever led the charge and said, you know, with no exaggeration, purpose comes first now. We don't have brand managers, we have brand activists, whatever that means. And without purpose, your brands aren't going to succeed. So they pegged their future to brand purpose. And, 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 you know, let's be fair, Unilever is an amazing company. The people are amazing marketers, and they genuinely believed they were doing the right thing. So there's no disingenuousness there. There was, however, in my opinion, a lot of brand incompetence there, which was very dangerous. And the incompetence came from a couple of places. First of all, back to our point about Patagonia, there was no sense from Unilever, we're doing this even though it's going to cost us some sales and, and some market share. It was, you know, we're going to, we're going to make even more money with brand purpose. That, as we've said, is naive. A bigger point, though, is Unilever operates a portfolio of brands, quite a lovely portfolio of some 20-something star brands. Unilever seem to forget the basics of brand management, which is when you run a portfolio of brands, one of the first key lessons is what works for one does not necessarily work for another. So here we had brilliant cases where strategically purpose made sense. Uh, Haggard, uh, sorry, Ben & Jerry's, it's a perfect purpose-driven company. It makes perfect sense. Um, Dove, again, the, one of the great purpose cases of all time. Brilliantly done, a really clear social purpose, which was brilliantly executed, which made the brand successful and, and had a demonstrable impact on society. All good. But the idea then that you would introduce that to Magnum ice cream bars or pot noodle or Hellman's mayonnaise was madness. I mean, so the Hellman's campaign was essentially reduce the waste mountain by buying Hellman's mayonnaise because they're trying to stretch to some ridiculous degree every brand's uh, differentiation and positioning so it has a purpose dimension at its center. Yeah, And it's it sparked this you know famous quote from Alan Smith who runs Fundsmith, a very large independent investment company, and they'd invested you know hundreds of millions of dollars into Unilever. And he was growing ever more frustrated with his obsession with purpose. And he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing him now, but basically, you know, any company that thinks there's a purpose behind Hellman's mayonnaise has lost the plot. It's been around for almost 100 years. I think we know what the purpose of Hellman's mayonnaise is. It's 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 sandwiches and salads, you know. And and it was it was a fair comment given that Unilever were struggling with this approach. Its share price has underperformed the other FMCG companies. And of course, at the end of this year, Alan Job, who, who CEO of the company who'd led this charge, um, essentially announced very early he'd be stepping down. And suddenly we had a raft of very senior figures at Unilever who'd pushed purpose first, purpose first, were now suddenly very clearly being told to say, you know, in, in many famous cases, it's, you know, purpose second. Purpose is the icing on the cake. It's not the cake, was Hanneke Faber's quote. Um, so they clearly had learned a lesson, which was, you know, we've we've got carried away with this purpose stuff. It's not, it wasn't working. And as we go into a global recession, it's not going to work even more. I mean, try taking on private label mayonnaise with a positioning based on, no, 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 don't buy the private label mayonnaise at half the price. Buy Hellman's because we'll reduce 
the Waste Mountain. You know, you're going to get killed out there. So there was a retrenchment by Unilever, which we have to respect. Also by Mark Pritchard, who had his own fair share of, of purpose nonsense over the last three or four years, who, you know, famously had said P&G was all about good and then it was about growth and announced at Cannes, oh, no, we got that wrong. It's about growth and then doing good. So you had a feeling that all the major companies that had pushed the purpose agenda weren't walking away from it, but they were watering it down. And I think we were going on the slope of the Dunning-Kruger effect and realizing that it's more complex complex than that. So what do you think Ehrenberg Bass would say, or what have they said about purpose? Well, they're, they're as usual, far too strong against it. Um, so Ehrenberg Bass, I think I don't want to speak for them, but I think have said in the past that it's, you know, complete nonsense. Uh, my point would be the strategy point, that it's not complete nonsense. It works for some brands, you know, with Unilever in mind, it definitely works for Dove. It has worked for Dove for decades. It just doesn't work for Pot Noodle. So they're, they're very much, the whole thing is nonsense. I think I'm fair in saying. Um, and I found myself, you know, in between these two extremes, there's people selling purpose who obviously have a huge advantage uh, you know, in in getting more companies to do purpose, saying without purpose you will fail, and then there are other critics saying all oh, purpose is nonsense. The nuance in the middle is most of the time it's probably nonsense, but for some brands it does work. So I think that that's that's the balance we should aim for. Again, strategy is choice, purpose is strategy. Make a choice, and you should be allowed to choose not to follow the purpose path. It doesn't automatically mean you're a bastard that's destroying the planet and treating employees badly. Number two, Russian brand exodus. Tell us about this yeah. one. Well, look, we have to remember the people of Ukraine. Um, they're going through a tough winter, almost a year now of being attacked by Putin and his spook regime. Um, of the most evil totalitarian nature. Uh, and the people of Ukraine have done nothing wrong other than want to live in their country and be Ukrainian. And it's the most despicable evil endeavor that we've seen in decades. And it's easy for us to forget about it now that it's a year in, it's not so cool anymore, the outrage begins to fade, when in reality the, the outrage should increase. So first of all, let's just remember the people of Ukraine and and and, and where we can, let's help them. Um, and let's make sure we don't let Putin and Russia off the hook for this intolerable crime that they're committing in front of our eyes. I've had a go at purpose, um, you know, in your, <laughs> in our, in our sections here. So let's give it some credit now. What we saw this year was a remarkable, um, a remarkable act of purpose from hundreds of brands who withdrew from Russia relatively quickly. Um, and I know from my own clients that the cost was proper. Per when we talk about purpose must cost you something. It cost many of my clients hundreds of millions of dollars to withdraw from the from 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 Russia. It's a huge market for many of them. And yet they walked away and left infrastructure and huge sales and huge investment because they felt like they had to. And and I think it was a, a, a in a horrible situation, a wonderful moment where Purpose did for once uh, emerge and was something that was amazing. And I've worked a lot in Russia over the years. Russians love shopping, more so than Americans, I would say. They love McDonald's, you know. They love fashion. And, and why this was so important 
was Putin has a pretty useless army, as we've now discovered. But one thing that he's world-beating at is propaganda. And he, you know, there's been many articles about this. He was able to dupe the Russian people into believing the war was just and the rest of the world was kind of stepping back and accepting it, right? This message that the brand sent to the Russian people was unmistakable. To see McDonald's close down overnight, yeah? To see uh, all their favorite uh, fashion brands shut down and disappear meant that the Russian people got a message that you suck. You suck on a global level, and we want nothing to do with any of you scumbags until you stop doing what you're doing to Ukraine. And I, th- I was so proud of brands that that you know took that move to send that Im- important message. And and maybe one other call out here was that Yale School of Management. We were able to apply a lot of pressure to the brands that really wanted to stay in there, um, because. Um, Yale School of Management set up almost immediately a really well-researched league table of what brands were doing, and it became quickly obvious which brands were, were trying to stick around. And so the world's media could could authoritatively point a finger at them. So Yale deserves a bit of credit here as well. So it was a, it was a moment in a horrible situation where, for once, brands did something, I think, very meaningful. I'd love to think that that was all about you know, a noble move and doing the right thing and it's about integrity and principles but i i I think a big part of it also is realizing that the brands that have been slow to make decisions maybe maybe um maybe kanye and adidas might be an example of that this in this year uh have have um been beaten up so um i i'd like to i'd like to think that you use the word this being a good example of purpose. I would just think this is the right thing to do. It's it's about integrity. It's about having principles as an organization. One last point on this was, and a point you made in your deck, which was the sort of the the downside of of um, trademark infringement. So this is a good story, right? So. I think it was McDonald's that it happened to first. So when McDonald's pulled out, that was a huge message to the Russian people. Like, where the hell is McDonald's going? You know, they were trying to piece together what was going on, right? They thought the war was okay. Why is McDonald's closing down across Russia? And then it became obvious there was something else going on. And I think it was one of their politicians or the speaker at the the the, the council said, look, we don't need McDonald's. We can have Vanya burgers, <laughs> as in Uncle Vanya. And overnight, the, the McDonald's premises were replaced with uh, a Syriac um, version of McDonald's. It looks like the McDonald's logo, but now apparently it spells out Vanya. But it's, looks like, it's, like, it's like McDougal's in any Murphy movie from back in the day, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, living so, in that's what, so that's what happened coming is to, a whole bunch America. of pirate Russian entrepreneurs took over the premises of the old brands. IKEA, which is huge in Russia, was replaced with IDEA with the identical logo. My favorite one was KFC was replaced with CFC, Crimea <laughs> fried chicken. And, and what's interesting is these brands have been ratified by Putin's failed state. So... They're the official brands now. So if, if the war ever does come to an end and McDonald's try and go back into Russia, Vanya Burger can sue them because they're essentially infringing on their trademark, which has now been approved by the Russian government. So it's a hell of a mess and speaks to the fact that this might be decades long before we see any form of normality in, in terms of Russian consumption cycles. So the number one marketing moment for Mark Ritson in 2022 is stagflation marketing. Tell us about this. 
So stagflation isn't a common term in the US. It's very common in the UK from the 70s, the last time we went through this. There was a little-known British politician that invented the concept. Basically, stagnation or recession going on with the economy, but inflation of prices combining to make a very potent, problematic situation. And different economies handled this differently this year. Certainly in the UK and around Europe, not so much Asia, this was a massive problem. Um, So you had two challenges, right, as a marketer. You had to maintain your ad spend because that's what you do in a recession. There's loads of data on this. If you maintain ad spend during a recession and some of your competitors, as they will, inevitably pull back, it gives you a huge excess share of voice, which generates dramatic growth, not necessarily during the recession, but the period when after when the recession ends and growth resumes. And we have literally 100 years of data on this. So ironically, you maintain ad spend in a recession, not because of the recession, not even because of consumers, but because someone in your market will pull back and you will get a competitive advantage. And there are many case studies of brands that have built their strength from maintaining ad spend when others have pulled back. P&G have done it you know, seven or eight times over in their history with their brands. Target in the US is a more notable example. They always play the game very well. So the first challenge in in a recession was defend and maintain ad spend. The second challenge is put your prices up because if inflation is at 10%, you've just lost 10 points of, of, of profitability, which is, you know, potentially fatal. And here we reach this problem where marketers are no longer involved in pricing in many companies, which is an enormous problem because pricing involves three things, research, setting the price, and then communicating the price. And you need marketers for the research part because otherwise companies look at costs and competitors, and those are dumb places to look at when you set a price. All the research tells us, if you don't talk to customers as part of your pricing research, you end up underpricing your product nine times out of 10. So we need marketers involved in the research process. And also, as we saw with Musk at the start of this countdown, Marketers need to help with the communication and the framing of price. How you anchor it and present it is a marketing matter. Now, I'm not saying marketers should be in charge of pricing. They never were and they never should be. I'm saying we have not got marketers around the pricing table in many companies, partly because companies don't respect their marketing function and partly because a lot of marketers aren't good enough and are fundamentally just advertising people. But in the good companies where we have properly trained marketers, we are now seeing marketers having an enormous impact in helping to set and communicate price changes, which is for this year and for next year, the most important P is getting pricing right, partly thanks to marketers. And I think we saw that played out throughout the year with companies that did and didn't get their pricing right and how important that one issue really is. Mark Ritson. It is uh, a pleasure to have done this with you, a columnist, an advisor, a professor of marketing, the uh, and the uh, the main man behind the mini MBA program, which is enormously popular. I encourage everybody to check that out. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for doing this. I hope you and your family have a great uh, Christmas holiday and a happy new year to you. And same to you, Fergus, and um, uh, all the best. And I hope you have a a lovely festive period, mate. And we will see everybody in uh, 2023, and we'll do this again at the end of the year. 
Thanks for listening. Have a great holiday. Stay safe and um, uh, the best of luck with all we do next year. Take care.